this is Jay Cut, and this is the K Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. My name is Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers over at Films Fatale. I love international and art house cinema, and a little bit of everything in between. And we are all excited for the great films that come out at the end of the year. But we're not going to be discussing those just yet. Instead, we're going to be discussing something quite possibly far more interesting. Who else do I have with me? James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. And my main interests lie in no-budget cinema and 70s cinema. I'm Rachel. I love classic cinema, silent movies, lost film, and international film. And they all come up in this topic that we are discussing tonight. And that is, get ready folks for the exciting world of copyright law. Ah. We are going into the public domain, not us, please don't steal our podcast, but we're going to talk about films and what puts them in the public domain and why we have the restrictions we do. We will mostly be talking about the USA in this episode, just because with Hollywood being so big, it's the one that tends to affect us the most. But keep in mind, things may vary from country to country, and the internet blurs these lines even more. So, in general, most movies are out of public domain. They are under copyright for 95 years. So right now it's 2022. Films from 1927 or earlier are generally public domain. And after that, it gets really messy. So for one thing, you cannot define who the author of a film is very easily. Is it the director? Is it the studio? Is it the screenwriter? What happens when the studio goes out of business? What happens if you can't find the heirs to the director? That sort of thing. And for another, many of the different elements of the film fall under different forms of copyright, such as music or characters. So it is really, really hard to define who owns a film and how long they own it for. And the laws have changed a lot. Um, But every year on New Year's Day, it is public domain day and more and more films come into this thing. For that matter, some filmmakers do release their... um, do allow their films to be released into the public domain early. One notable example is Maddie Doe, who made the very great Laotian horror film Chantali. And um, Universal Newsreels donated their collection to the National Archives free. For a period of time as well, it used to be that you had to renew your copyright uh, in order to maintain it after a period of several years. So a lot of films, including a lot of famous ones, fell out of the public, or fell into the public domain, sometimes totally by accident. Anyway, that's just my little spiel on public domain, but the gist of it is, if a film falls into this, whether through age or by intention or simple neglect, then you can basically go nuts with it, and it's probably on YouTube. This is such a contemporary topic because, um, you know, film itself is over 100 years old, but the narrative as we know it, excluding, you know, D.W. Griffiths and all of that, I'm talking about, like, um, you know, talkies and, of course, the, uh, the golden years of the silent age. That's roughly around 100 years old now, like Nosferatu just turned 100, I believe. And we're seeing a lot of stuff happening. I know earlier this year it was hip to talk about Winnie the Pooh, but that was the literary Winnie the Pooh entering the public domain, and there's a horror film based on that. Uh, Bambi's next, by the way, uh, the literary form of Bambi is apparently getting its horror remake, which, I mean, listen, if we're going to be doing these, can we do something a little bit more imaginative? But those are interesting in any respect because Disney is one of the corporations that's really shaking in its boots uh, surrounding a certain mouse. It is true. 
yeah, Mickey Mouse will be entering the public domain shortly. I think it's in like just a couple of years, I think. I think they trademarked him as long as they possibly can, and now everybody's just putting their foot down. Yeah, because I think in the States, correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, because you're way more knowledgeable with this stuff than I am. In the States, it's not 100 years, like it is a candidate. It's 95, right? It's 95, and that's only for motion pictures. So, for example, literature, it's 70 years after the death of the author. And the thing is, the ownership can be so complicated that I've literally stumbled across cases where they will say things like, we don't actually know who owns this. We have no answer to this case. We're just going to leave it here. And that's the actual resolution on cases. Yeah. And I mean, it gets really finicky because it's not even just, you know, motion pictures themselves get their own copyright, but that everything within the film, ranging from the soundtrack or score to a certain elements, they get their own copyright. And I feel like we're going to be coming across a lot of these types of examples when the podcast proceeds, of course. Yeah, copyright is always a funny thing, especially with film, just like you said, all the different elements, but also not even from a public domain perspective, how often do films fall out of circulation just for simply just mishandling of rights or just the fact that, you know, maybe like like an example, there's this movie I've been trying to track down called Sleuth and it stars Michael Caine. It was made in 1972. But it's not available in anywhere but like unless you get like a different region on like DVD. And the reason was, and I don't remember what kind of company it was, but it was the company that owned the movie wasn't like a movie production company. It happened to be another company that decided to get into movies and now they don't do movies anymore. And now the rights are just kind of like tied up in with whatever the assets are there. And this happens to a lot of things or, you know, things like something is circulated for a while, but they can't get the rights to like music or something silly. Like um, actually um, a former a smorgasbord uh, recommendation that I made, uh, Gregoraki's Nowhere, that had an issue with rights to music, which is why it only had a short distribution lifetime as far as home media is concerned in the States, because I think he said it was an issue with like a producer not securing music rights like moving forward. So it's like, there's just so many reasons why like movies can just get kind of lost kind of in the shuffle of just business. And not to mention that copyright law has never really been updated. Yeah, um, Andreas, I don't know if you studied this in our program, but there was a actually a whole course we did on what are called orphan films where they've fallen off the copyright radar for one reason or another. And we had to do a lot of research on uh, examples of orphan films and things like that. Yeah, we absolutely did. It's uh, it's just one of those things where unless you like study film in any capacity, it doesn't have to be like masters in collections or preservation the concept alone of a lost film, a film that existed once that ceases to now, eludes a lot of people. Like, it's just something that they would never consider, let alone something that's completely orphaned. And it has, like, zero kind of archival or preserved or even dis- distributed identity at all. You also get weird cases with the internet now. Let's say a film enters the public domain in country A, it's perfectly legal to put it on YouTube from that country, but if someone watches it from country B where it's not in the public domain, then they're breaking the law. So how do you reconcile things like that? Haha, <laughs> <laughs> regions, one of the yeah. worst things for the industry, as we we've learned. about this every Oscar season. Geoblocking sucks. <laughs> time and time again. Well... Even, um, I actually remember there's this really hilarious thing that I was watching. I was watching, um, 
I forgot what it was called, but it was a, a John Waters one man show thing. And he was talking about how, um, you know, he was the first to do the smell vision. Right. What happened was, so years later, they decided to utilize that for the Rugrats movie. But the problem was they never renewed the patent mm. for John. And then when he like tried to see what they could do, he's like, oh, well, it's like an homage. And he says, yeah, an homage would have been a check. <laughs> and of course, patent law is its own. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I've always thought that if I were to become a lawyer, which I do not want to do, I would always I would want to do copyright law because there's just so many weird situations that would be really interesting to learn about. You know, you would be employed your entire life because most people on Earth don't know every single thing about copyright. So they would have to come to you quite often. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, uh, actually, another great example of rights is because uh, um, it's very well known in the media realm that uh, Alan Moore wants nothing to do with Hollywood and actually specifically tells Warner Brothers not to get a hold of him regarding Watchmen. Right. Because the him and who was it? Let's see, it was Alan Moore. Oh, Dave Gibbons. Right. And John and Colors John Higgins. So the reason he really des- despises this situation in particular is because the rights in their contract were supposed to revert back to the creators when it went out of print. They never stopped printing Watchmen. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like their loophole and like, hey, we're just going to keep printing it. You don't get the rights back. So that that's the one of the most particular reasons he just had, wants nothing to do with any adaptations of his work because of deals like this. And I mean, the comic book industry has a, a litany of its own issues, mm-hmm. especially on top of especially with the movie industry, because apparently like Marvel movies are super successful, but the original comic creators don't really see much from that. Well, when I was a uh, preteen, I stumbled into the weird world of fan fiction and fell instantly in love. And that was a whole host of copyright issues right there, because a lot of creators did not want fan fiction of their work. And the internet said, yeah, right, and continued to do it anyway. But it, there was a lot of there was a lot of back and forth about it in the early 2000s. I think, wasn't there also a period during like the like the counterculture days in the 60s where like underground artists were making like sex comics of like Disney characters and Disney was like, you guys need to stop right now. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard of that. Um, but I can see why Disney would not want that circulating. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so that's a brief guide to sort of how copyright functions, at least in Hollywood. And what limitations there might be and uh, some ways where it might not apply. So now we, uh, I thought we would each talk about a public domain film that we really enjoy or find interesting or find to be significant in some way. Um, so let's see. Um, who would like to go first? I'll go. Okay. Um, well, mine is a no-brainer. Oftentimes, when we're asked questions in the pod, it's like, okay, let's uh, maybe consider what it might be. Um, you know, really, really think about about this. It could be anything for this. This is like the biggest no-brainer I think I've ever been asked on this pod. And I've talked about this film a million times, and I think everybody knows already what it is, if you already know about its status. And that is Stanley Donen's charade. Right, we, you, you hinted at this when uh, I think James got it for Smorgasbord. <laughs> yeah. I knew exactly what it was when she uh, brought this up. You're like, I know what mine is. And I was like, yeah, I know too. 
what else would it be? This is such a fantastic example because you have a heavily established star in um, in Cary Grant. Audrey Hepburn by this point was also beloved, and um, you have this huge film by the guy who did Singing in the Rain, and lo and behold, it's public domain, and you can legally watch it everywhere and every distribution company from Criterion uh, to all these streaming services has this, uh, you know, has this film because they can. What the hell happened here? How did how did they drop the ball so much? Well, it's uh, very interesting, but a very simple mistake. And this is not the only film to fall into this sort of uh, sort of problem. Uh, Universal and the like uh, fell into this very sudden issue of. Um, poor copyright clearance, where in the case of Charade, uh, they did not specifically have the words copyright, C-O-P-R, with a period afterwards, or the copyright symbol on their documents. And as a result, it was instantly, as far as I know, instantly null and void when it came to its legal status. And a number of films have fallen privy to this. I don't want to spoil in case anybody has it. Does anybody have a specific horror film selected? I do. No, but mine had a similar problem. Is yours from the 60s? Mine? Uh, yours, James? Yes. Okay, I'm not going to bring it up then. I think I know what it is. So a lot of films that I'm sure we will run into uh, down the road in this podcast had a similar issue. And it's just astounding because, um, you know, I, I chose this film because I love it. But another reason why I chose it is kind of dear to me and it's only because of this mistake that i could uh you know bring it up in such a pod so i don't know if i've brought this up on the podcast before but i actually suffer from sleep disorders i've got sleep apnea and insomnia and um before i had a CPAP machine it actually was really bad and i was like struggling to even get out of bed even though i couldn't go to sleep but i wanted to like maybe go put on a movie or read a book or something. I, I couldn't do anything. As soon as I would get up, I would collapse, but I just would not sleep. And it got to the point that like, I was like worried that I would need hospitalization. Um, it was very, very, very bad. But one of the only things that helped outside of getting my CPAP, figuring out what sleep remedies I need, one of the only things that helped was putting on a film that wasn't really challenging or provoking in any way. It was something that, I just enjoyed watching, and uh, one of my go-tos was Singing in the Rain, which um, I guess you'll see where I'm going with this. And the other one was Charade, and why is it important? I actually own it on Blu-ray, and I will own it on 4K if that option ever becomes um, available, which it might be. I'll have to look into it. But um, in this particular instance, it's, again, I could not get out of bed. I was stuck, but I was still wide awake, and I couldn't, like stop my thoughts from running and racing and the sun was coming up and I was like feeling weaker than I ever have because of its public domain status. I was actually able to always pop this up on YouTube and wind, wind myself down to a nice lull and eventually sleep thanks to charade. So I've seen the opening half an hour, maybe 60 times. That's incredible. And it's because of its public domain status. I own the film. Yes, but I could not even bring myself to, go to my television and pop the disc in. I just could not do it. This, on the other hand, I could do in my um, really de-energized state. So, 
thanks, uh, thanks, <laughs> legal issues. That's cool. Well, who wants to go next? Uh, I will. Okay. So mine fell into a similar problem. It was a United Artists film called Beat the Devil from 1953. Have either of you seen it? No. I actually haven't. Okay, well, you both should. It's really funny. It was kind of like a precursor to Ocean's Eleven and that it was a sort of funny heist film. And uh, it was never copyright renewed, so it was often found in those 15 packs of DVDs for a dollar you used to be able to get at Walmart. And it's got Peter Lorre, Humphrey Bogart, Gina Lillibrigida, Jennifer Jones, Robert Morley. It was written by Truman Capote, and it was directed by John Huston, and everybody had this incredible time making the film in Italy. So it's a pretty special treasure of a movie, and yet you could find it all over the place because they never bothered to keep up with it. I don't think it was a huge success when it was released, but it's become a cult hit since. And some people argue it is the first camp film, and it's basically just a bunch of criminals messing things up and having a whale of a time while they're doing it. And Humphrey Bogart and Truman Capote became buddies during the film, which I wish I was a fly on the wall for. Truman Capote and Humphrey Bogart, for some reason that's a match made in heaven I did not ever think that I would need. This is a great example, even though I haven't seen the film, because you bring up the cult status, and I feel like perhaps only because of its stature in the public domain would that have been possible. Mm-hmm. And it has the most amazing cast. It's really just, it's not like the greatest Hollywood film ever made, but it's a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's free. Like, you can yeah. go put it on right after this episode. Amazing. Well, I'm going to have to definitely check that out. And because it's public domain, I have zero excuses. Yeah. What about you, James? Alrighty. Before I get into mine, I'd like to give an honorable mention to a certain former Smorgasbord collective pick that we watched that was also in the public domain for years, which is Carnival of Souls by Herc Harvey. Ah, yes. Yep. The uh, Yeah, it was a missing copyright notice. And then there is a dispute from 1990 to 1995 when the film's rights, it says it might have been granted to John Clifford in 1996. But when uh, Criterion released it, it um, lists copyright to both Herc Harvey and John Clifford. So I was like, oh, that's really interesting because when, when Criterion does acquire films, and if this is the case, they do name somebody as a copyright holder which is the case with my film. So mine, I decided to go with, and Andreas obviously knew what it was when he brought it up, and I said it probably was it. Uh, the 1968 George Romero classic, Night of the Living Dead. Ah, uh, yes. Of probably the biggest well-known example that there is. It's the second most downloaded film on Internet Archive. What's the first one out of interest? I don't know. I, I've been trying to find it, but I couldn't. <laughs> it doesn't just, I don't know. I tried Googling it. It wouldn't give me a straight answer. But uh, so this is an example like charade is they're examples of how sensitive copyright is, because this is literally a case. If you do not have copyright in the film print itself, that it's just voids it completely. And apparently when it um, image 10, the production company earlier prints had it under its original name, night of the flesh eaters. But then when the name changed, the distributor like removed it and didn't, reinstate a copyright notice oh, no. and so yeah if you don't have that copyright notice it's up for grabs so that yeah that was just literally the case and i'm like this is one of the most famous horror movies of all time and it's just 
free. Like such a groundbreaking classic and all because it it's just it seems like the most minuscule clerical error causes all these really weird situations with just like overall like rights to works which obviously shouldn't be the case but it's like man this is why the, the it's like we always try to make for case for like updating copyright law because it's kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, copyright was why we see it's a wonderful life every year at Christmas, right? Cause they let it lapse. And so it was cheap to show at Christmas time. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we discussed that before. Yeah. That's brilliant. Uh, yeah. With uh night of the loving dead again, I can't help but wonder if um, this whole zombie craze, especially because uh, we can, easily proclaimed that he reinvented the genre uh, with this particular film. Um, I wonder if the zombie craze uh, is indebted to this public domain status, including the uh, colorized version of it, uh, which uh, please don't watch that one. It's awful. Uh, Wasn't that one? What's his name? Bought. um, I can't remember his name. He bought like a student. He bought like the rights to a bunch of movies and started colorizing them. And that's when like everybody was like, no, we're taking this to court. Huh? Ted Turner. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, grumbling on classic movie forums about Ted Turner and his crayon. <laughs> Ted Turner, whether it's uh, you know educating children as if they're uh, imbeciles or colorizing films, guy has zero tact, <laughs> zero um, yeah, zero respect. <laughs> anyway, um, not a Living Dead though. It's interesting that Criterion now is a 4K copy of it because it feels like in this particular race when it comes to, well, it's public domain. Everything is uh, allowed to show this film. Criterion finally has what I would consider the first leg up in this kind of uh, this kind of environment of showing the film because you can watch it in any single format. But if you love the film, now you could see it preserved and in 4K which you can't really do on YouTube, not at this moment. So um, I, f- I find that's also an interesting take on it, where it's like, uh, if you can't afford to, can you see it in any capacity? Absolutely. But if you can't afford to, now you've got options. Now you've got like a version that if you're a big fan, you might want to throw some money towards, you know? That's why I think there's a big importance to a lot of the boutique home media companies because they handle these works with such care. And I'm not even talking just Criterion, but like Arrow or like Vinegar Syndrome or all these other like boutique companies. They, you know, they, they, they try their best to acquire the actual negatives or the earliest, like best condition prints. And they do completely new transfers, clean them up. And, you know, that's necessary. I mean, most of the studios don't really care about properties like the people who are trying to preserve, which is really sad. It's almost like how we've talked about, you know, early days of film, they just were like, Oh, it, it, it had its run and toss it in the, you know, bin. Yeah. And that's the thing, just because you can public domain doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Well, do we have anything else to say about the, uh, limitless yet extremely limited nature of the public domain? Well, I think the number of very notable films you'll find under that category are surprising. And there's some very innovative ones. They're like almost all the silent movies by this point. So I would encourage you to go check it out. There's a list on Wikipedia and just see what you can find. That's free. Yeah, especially if you're, uh, you know, great point about silent films, especially since um, in the next at least 10 years or so, 
a vast majority of all of the silent film classics that maybe aren't from Asia or from Chaplin, you know, in the 30s, are going to be public domain. Mm -hmm. And uh, the world is your oyster at this point. Well, uh, now you know where to find a lot of free films uh, in the public domain, and you never know. It's not necessarily just this this and whatever that you're going to find there you might find some really big films and cult classics as well plus again a ton of silent films so uh you should go check that out otherwise uh if you're interested in hearing more about cake cut and our other episodes rachel where can we point our listeners we are on facebook twitter and instagram under the cake cut and our films this month uh, for Smorgasbord. Individuals are Lauchamp, Blue Ruin, and Harold and Maude, and the collective is 1960s Private Property. Brilliant. And uh, I believe we have some random recommendations this week, don't we? We do, we do. And uh, I'm not sure how many additional things we could add from the public domain, so these don't necessarily have anything to do with the episode, if we see fit. We could have 20 episodes of films from the public domain under it. That's also true. That's also true. Um, but I mean... The things that we want to recommend is the, is the ideal thing. Actually, maybe you have one that you, you want to recommend, or it could be completely arbitrary. Okay, well, mine is going to be Penny Serenade. It was a collaboration between Cary Grant and one of his favorite co-stars, Irene Dunn. And it's a very against type film for them. It's more of a soppy drama, and I'll admit the story's a little weak, but it does have one of Cary Grant's all-time best performances at a type that doesn't really come from him very often. So... I check it out just to see what that man could do. Brilliant. Um, I guess if we're going in the same order here, um, you know, you brought up Cary Grant, and I think it's in the public domain. You might have to correct me if it's not. Um, one of the greatest screwball films of all time. I guess Cary Grant had something against copyrights. I don't know. Um, the film His Girl Friday by Howard Hawks, which I think is a brilliant film, and um one of the funniest films based on dialogue alone uh it speaks at an average rate faster than most films you'll ever watch and it's just excellent and if i'm actually correct it that it is in the public domain or easy to find have at it it's just pure lunacy and it's brilliant the answer is kind of because uh, His Girl Friday is in the public domain just by nature of letting the copyright lapse, but the front page, which it was heavily based on, is not public domain until 2024. Uh, so oh, wow. uh, it falls into a little bit of a crack, but I think the film kind of passes. I've definitely seen it in cereal boxes. <laughs> cereal boxes. So I, I guess I'm going to kind of bookend the rights thing and uh, get into kind of something that's similar. So I'm going to pick, you know, the. Um, 2000 horror parody scary movie Ooh. specifically because so this film there are six writers credited there are the wayne's brothers obviously and a couple of their writers from the wayne's brothers television show and then the other writers credited are jason friedberg and aaron seltzer the guys who made all those really awful parody movies in the early 2000s like date movie meet the spartans epic movie and what happened was, while the Wayans Brothers in crew were developing their script, those two were developing a screen parody for Miramax. And due to the Writers Guild, because guilds are awesome, they credited everybody, even though Aaron and Jason did not contribute to the script that was filmed. 
So, yeah, uh, unions are really weird when it comes to credits, much like how copyrights can be really strange in just overall business. Yeah, uh, there's some really great stories out of that, too. Fantastic. Well, thank you uh, both for another lovely episode of the Kick On, and thank you listeners at home for listening to uh, this copyright special episode of the K-Cut and um, I feel like we've done everything legally and we can't get sued or, into, or in any sort of trouble uh, please uh, uh, if, if we haven't uh, don't come after us uh, we're not going into the all cut <laughs> <laughs>